Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. All right, today it's part two. We're continuing our discussion from last time. And without any delay, let's get right into today's content. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm your guest host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. And my guest today is Dr. Raj Dasgupta, who is here to talk with us about insomnia. You know, when I think of talking to my patients, I usually call it a sleep log because that's what I want. When did you go to bed? When did you wake up? But a journal kind of reminds me of like Hello Kitty journals that little, you know, kids write stuff in and tonight journal. So I usually call it a sleep log. But more importantly, there's something called actigraphy that we're going to be talking about shortly, which is actually a technology that really tells the truth behind your sleep and takes out the chance that I may getting the wrong information from a sleep log or journal. So we'll talk more about parasleep misinterpretation in one second. Now, this one is called psychophysiologic insomnia, and this was the answer to the question. So what are some things? There's excessive worrying. So when you go back and think about the question we're talking about, you know, she was so worried. She was dreading bedtime. She's getting to bed early. And these are people who don't have generalized anxiety disorder. This is only anxiety related to sleep itself. And they start engaging in bad behaviors. And in this case, I remember she was going to bed at eight, even though she's not going to bed till like 11 or falling asleep till like 11. You know, so all these things were going in. Patients may start taking sleeping pills. Patients may start drinking alcohol. And you know that I, I got to mention it right now. People are always asking about why is alcohol bad when we talk about sleep. So we always start off by saying, does alcohol give you a shortened sleep latency? What does that mean? Does it knock you out to go to sleep? The answer is yes. That's what alcohol does, and it does a good job at it. But what is the downside is multiple arousals and awakening in the second half of the night. Not to mention, when we talk about alcohol, of course, you want to avoid many trips to the bathroom. And for my US MLE students out there, what hormone does alcohol like to inhibit? And the answer is, it's ADH, anti-diuretic hormone. So all these things kind of factor in. And that's exactly, I mean, if you like the lecture so far, everyone, this is what I do. It's my favorite I word. It's integrate. So taking the ADH that you love from nephrology, that you love from endocrinology, and kind of combining it when we talk about sleep medicine. So when we talk about other things I always look at, you got to look at the medication list. And on the USMLE and board exams, you got to uh, know what are going to be the side effects of medications. Those are high yield farm pearls. So number one for insomnia, antidepressants. So when I think of antidepressants, I put them for sleep medicine into two broad categories. I put antidepressants that are going to have a sleeping sedative type effect and antidepressants that have more of an alerting type effect. So which antidepressants make you sleepy? It's going to be the TCAs, these tricyclic antidepressants. And why do TCAs are going to make you sleepy is for a couple of things. It's not just the anticholinergic effects. I mean, those are always the unwanted side effects that you could have, like that really, really dry mouth. But it's because it has the antihistamine effects. When you talk about TCAs, they have antihistamine effects. So let me ask you this, my podcast board listeners. 
Histamine is what type of neurotransmitter? Is it an alerting neurotransmitter or a sedating? I wish we could talk. I really do. And the answer is, it's an alerting neurotransmitter. I know, I got you on that one. And how do I know that? Is because when you take antihistamine medications, the classic one is always going to be diphenhydramine. What does it do? It blocks histamine. So that's how some of these TCAs, we use them because they have that sedative, sedative tongue, tongue twister right there, effect. When we talk about alerting antidepressants, you think about the SSRIs, the SNRIs, because things like serotonin in most cases, norepinephrine, these are alerting neurotransmitters that we have in the central nervous system. Other things that can cause insomnia could be beta blockers. And people say, why? And of course, these are not going to be the historically the cardioselective ones like metoprolol or carvedilol, things that reduce mortality when we talk about congestive heart failure, but the non-specific ones, things like propranolol, brand name Indorol, things like natalol. And how does that give you insomnia? It blocks melatonin. And when we talk about melatonin, that's going to be one of the most important natural hormones that gets released by my favorite gland, the pineal gland. You know what I mean? And of course, if you block that release of it, it's going to cause some insomnia. Bronchodilators can do it, especially talking about my beta-2 agonists such as albuterol. Decongestions can do it. Of course, pseudoephedrine is a stimulant. Steroids. That's my fault. So me and my wife, my wife is actually a rheumatologist. And you know, for any room disorder, not all of them, but most of them, what does she give her patients? Yeah, steroids. I see a lot of sarcoid patients, so I give a lot of steroids. So I make a lot of my patients have insomnia. So it's very important to see what disorders they may have. Are they going to be on steroids? And of course, the last one is stimulants. And of course, caffeine is going to be right there. Nicotine. You know, you'll be amazed. I'm a pulmonary doctor. And they know that even though they see me for sleep. And still, I have patients who smoke their cigarettes to try to get them to sleep. I'm like, no, nicotine is a stimulant. But I'll find any reason to encourage someone to stop smoking. So I definitely would take that advantage of that. So always look at the medication list. How do we evaluate insomnia? Well, number one, it's the history and the physical and the history and the physical. I can't, you know, say that enough. And I think that's the hardest part. People always ask me, being palm critical care, why did you go into sleep, you know? And, you know, initially, I thought it was a great transition. I'm like, why not? You know, everyone has a sleep disordered breathing, and it's all about OSA and CPAP and BiPAP. But, you know, I was pleasantly surprised that that's not all what sleep medicine is, everyone. It's about insomnia. It's about narcolepsy. It's about restless leg syndrome, parasomnia, sleep deprivation. There's so much more to it. And the hardest part is, is you do need to spend time with your patients, which is hard for many doctors, you know? So you need a great history. My second bullet point, which you cannot see, is you don't need a sleep study. You don't need to order a sleep study to diagnose insomnia. One thing you can do is order something called actigraphy. And this is going to be my next question to everyone is, who just wants to yell out, what is actigraphy? And the answer is, it rhymes with the word activity. So it's actually the truth behind your sleep. And what does it look like? It's like a wristwatch. You know what I mean? And in fact, I'm sure many of you have what a Fitbit or a Nike 
fuel band or an Apple Watch, you know, and all these things have an accelerometer, which they measure movements. So the reason why I like actigraphy is that it's FDA approved. And what happens is I order it and my patients will go home for maybe one week or two weeks and they wear it on their wrist. And what happens is based on the algorithm that is validated, but I don't know exactly what it is, that when you have no movement and based upon if it also has a light sensor, they're going to interpret this as sleep. So this way, you know, when someone comes into me and says, Dr. Raj, yes, I haven't slept in two years. I would look at the actigraphy to say, hey, no, according to this, they're really sleeping six hours, seven hours, eight hours. And then also actigraphy is very important when I wanted to diagnose what we call circadian rhythm problems, which probably might be, if you guys like this podcast, a separate podcast talking about morning larks and night owls and all those things. This is a type of technology to help me diagnose these circadian rhythm issues. And you know, I have a slide that I'm staring at with all these new technologies out there about tracking your sleep and tracking your steps. And, you know, many people ask me, well, what is my personal take on it? And I'll tell you right now that, you know, anything that encourages exercise, anything that encourages sleep, I'm on board, I'm game on. But once again, of course, it's a double-edged sword because in some cases, I'm telling you to go to bed with your cell phone, which I'm telling you in the beginning of this podcast, get away from it. So it's always going to be that fine balance. And let me say one more thing. Now you're getting me all fired up that what's another downside of this technology is that I'm just thinking back to, you know, my sleep patients with insomnia. When they see me, the first thing they do is they grab their cell phone, literally like this. I wish you could see this on a camera and they go, look at this, Dr. Raj, according to this app, I only slept 55% last night. I'm like, okay. So when you think about people with insomnia, they tend to have a lot of anxiety. And so when they're using an app that gives you a number based on an algorithm, how are they starting the day? And many of my patients, you know, will be like, no, next night, I'm going to get that up to 65. Then I'm going to hit 70. And once again, that kind of feeds to the answer to the question, psychophysiologic insomnia. They start doing bad things. And of course, in the worst case scenario, what can they do? Take a sleeping pill because I'm, I, you know, though we do need sleeping pills, you know what I mean? I, I, that's not my go-to in most cases. So I just wanted to say my piece about that. But this was a good segue to exactly what I want to say, which is going to be what is the cornerstone therapy for insomnia is always three letters, everyone, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognition is always going to be your thoughts. Behaviors are literally your behaviors. And the key thing about CBT is that they're good for acute insomnia. People never believe me, but there are studies that show that. Of course, it's good for chronic insomnia. And, you know, when we talk about insomnia, yes, are people with medications, I'm always worried about when I'm refilling these medications too much. But you know what, everyone, for CBT, you could have as many refills as you want. You could overdose on CBT, and I won't even worry about it. So that is obviously the cornerstone of how we treat it. And let me give you some specific examples of cognitive behavioral therapy. You can't see it, but I put a, a wonderful slide for evidence-based medicine. I'm sure if you go to any website and put CBT and evidence-based medicine for acute and chronic, you'll see things. But let me talk about some of these. What, what are things or examples? So for cognitive therapy, which is addressing dysfunctional beliefs and negative thoughts, well, I would say one of the things is doing something called worry time. 
And what does worry time mean? It's kind of like from, at least when I was growing up, my parents called it study time. When you go home, this is time to study Raj. And if you do this, then you could have the award of watching whatever. So worry time is because the bed is only meant for sleeping. And you can imagine right now, I don't know when this podcast is going to be coming out, but no, we're still kind of in the tail end of a pandemic and people are going to bed after watching the news, after seeing all these different things. And it's really, really, really stressful. And there's so many, many things that people are worried about. You know, how am I going to catch COVID-19? So what worry time is, is setting a time during the day where you set a certain set amount of time, not just to worry, but to put all your concerns on a list. And to divide that list into two parts, things that, you know, you could intervene with and things you can't, what are things you can't intervene with? Is it possible that a meteor is going to strike Los Angeles, California tomorrow? And I guess I won't be here anymore. And the answer is yes, but I can't really control that. But if I had insomnia, can I control taking the TV out of my bedroom? The answer is yes. So I want to do things that I have control of. And I want to make a priority list about that. And during worry time, you want to focus on how you're going to address these issues. So you don't sit there and worry. You're going to be proactive about this. And this is one of many things that you can do. You know, when we talk about relaxation techniques, I mean, I got to tell you, a huge, huge fan of people who love meditation, people who could do yoga, breathing techniques, you know, whether you're a pulmonary patient or whether you have insomnia, diaphragmatic breathing, huge fan in through the nose, out through the mouth, all these things put together, muscle relaxations are going to be great things to do. I know you can't see my slide. It says biofeedback. What is biofeedback? It's something that we do more in a quote unquote lab setting than a practical thing. So biofeedback is basically having something objective that I can see that I'm calming this patient down. What would be an example of that? Well, let's say I could monitor your heart rate, that when I'm telling you to have positive imagery or calming you down or the sound of my voice or diaphragmatic breathing, I see the heart rate going down. That's biofeedback. And the reason why I'm bringing up another type of biofeedback is something called the galvanic skin response. And I don't know if anyone ever heard of that, but basically it's kind of like a lie detector, you know, because when you are aroused or excited, you get that sympathetic surge, what happens? You sweat. And that's exactly what a lie detector does. So I don't agree upon doing that. And anytime I talk about lie detectors, there's one movie that always jumps the mind. I don't know if any of you saw it. It's called Meet the Parents. I see poor Ben Stiller <laughs> like sitting down with Robert De Niro. So you don't want to do that to get better sleep, but that's kind of like what biofeedback is. But the last two things I want to mention, because I'm really getting way too into this, is sleep restriction and stimulus control. Sleep restriction means set bedtime, set wake time. And that means during holidays, that means on weekends. And it's definitely, you know, it's hard to do because as a parent, and I'm a parent, when Friday night hits, you know, I I had a long week of work. My kids had a hard uh, week of school. You want to treat them out. And I think our instincts is to be like, all right, you can stay up late. You can go out. You know what? Let's binge watch a movie Friday night because I could just sleep in on Saturday. That's not what you're supposed to do. You know what I mean? What you want to do, and if I am a, 
I'm trying them. Trust me, everyone. I'm trying to be a good parent is that I want my rewards to be, hey, on Saturday morning, let's wake up together as a family, walk outside and do some sports or take a nature walk. That's what it needs to be because if you're sleeping on Saturday, that's going to carry over to Sunday. And next thing you know, you're starting off Monday morning, what? Sleep deprived. And we call that social jet lag. Social jet lag is everyone going out and partying on Friday night, leading to being sleep deprived on Monday morning. And what happens is you start accumulating something called a sleep debt. And when we talk about this sleep debt, the only way that you could make up is making up for that sleep debt. And you know what that means? One hour on Monday is two hours on Tuesday is three hours on Wednesday. You got the drift. It's, it's no surprising we're sleep deprived. And that's just in adults. I mean, kids need what? I mean, depending on your age, what? Eight to nine, nine to 10 hours of sleep. So it, it's, it's really a big thing. Stimulus control is basically what me and, and Dr. O'Connell were talking about, which is the bed's only meant for one thing, sleeping. He said sex. That wasn't me, everyone. You know what I mean? So, and so if you can't fall asleep within the first 15 to 20 minutes, you're supposed to leave the bed and do things that are non-stimulating in dim light. And this leads to me telling people, well, well, go read a book, you know? And when I say that, honestly, are my patients, are my college students, I work here at USC, I see a lot of college students, are they going to grab a, a copy of old Moby Dick and read it? The answer is no. When you say read a book, they're probably going to grab their Kindle, their iPad, and next thing you know, there's technology again. And, oh, I got that Facebook post. Or a big thing right now in sleep medicine is something called blue light. And some of the physiology behind it is that sunlight has all different wavelengths of light. And blue light's the one that prevents the release of melatonin the most. It really suppresses melatonin quite a bit. So, of course, they have what they call blue light shades. You know, in the olden days, you know, when me, me and Dr. O'Connell, like, we wore <laughs> these really big orange goggles to block off the blue light. But of course, nowadays, like on your phones, you have like blue light shade and all these kind of things. So there is some physiology behind what's going on also. So sleep restriction stimulus control is going to be huge. But of course, let me talk about pharmacotherapy. And my opening bullet point, I'm just going to read it to everyone, is that drugs may enhance sleep, but often do not there's, and you can see my site, it's do not in big bolded red, improve daytime performance. And one thing I wanted to mention is something called the Beers List. I don't know if many of you have heard of the Beers List. It's from the American Geriatric Society. And it gives you a list of all the medications that could be harmful in our elderly patients. And every medication for insomnia is on that because we call those sedative hypnotics. So that's why you got to be careful. Now, on my slide, you see one of the most commonly prescribed sleeping medications, which is trazodone. And you know, if I were to ask you, how does trazodone work? Many people will say, I don't know, but I prescribe it. So it works on serotonin. So it's something that will manipulate serotonin in itself. So let's talk about some of the categories of drugs that you need to know for your board exams. Number one, I would say one of the more common prescription drugs that many doctors prescribe are what we call these non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists. So that was kind of a mouthful. So when we think about benzodiazepine, does anyone remember what receptor that works on? The answer is GABA. It loves the GABA receptor. That's an inhibitory receptor because GABA has what channel right in the middle of it? The channel is a 
chloride channel. And remember, most of your chloride is going to be what? Extracellular. So what happens is when you activate this channel, based upon its concentration gradient, chloride will go from extracellular to intracellular. And when all that negatively charged chloride goes in, what happens to the resting membrane potential of that cell? It what? Hyperpolarizes. And that's why it's going to be what? Inhibitory. And what do we do right there? We integrate it. So when we talk about, you know, the GABA receptor, it does have, it has many medications that are going to be attracted to that GABA receptor, lack of a better term. Things like barbiturates. Things like classic benzodiazepines, things like alcohol, all those are always going to be attracted to that GABA receptor. So when we talk about benzodiazepines, that there are actually three subtypes of the benzodiazepine receptors. There's alpha, there's beta, and there's gamma. So when we talk about these non-benzo benzodiazepine receptor agonists, they're really focusing on the alpha receptor when we talk about them. And the classic drugs are going to be called what we call kind of like these Z drugs. Zolpidem is a classic one. That's going to be the generic name for Ambien. There's also things like Sonata, which is Zeleplon. Zopaclone is going to be Lunesta. So I'm going to actually use their brand names because they're really catchy. So there's Sonata, Ambien, and uh, Lunesta. And they're all belong to the same category of medications. So people ask me, well, how do you know which one to give? Well, how about back to that clinical vignette in the beginning? I was kind of asking, is it important to realize if it's sleep onset versus sleep maintenance insomnia? The answer is, yeah, because if it's sleep onset, very short acting. So which one am I going to use? Probably Sonata. Why? Because it begins with the letter S. And S stands for short half-life. So it's good for sleep onset insomnia. If someone is going to have, let's say, early morning awakenings or sleep maintenance insomnia, you probably want to use something with a longer half-life. In theory, which one would I use? Probably Lunesta, because Lunesta begins with the letter L, and L stands for long half-life. But you know what the real answer is? It depends on insurance. I know all the doctors are nodding their heads right and of course, Ambien is going to be right in the middle. And yes, some doctors can say, but doesn't Ambien have a CR form? Yes, it does too. And Ambien also comes in some pretty funky forms, everyone. Did you know that Ambien comes in a sublingual tablet? Yes, go figure. And that has a really ultra-fast half-life where I have people that will have, you know, one or two awakenings, maybe at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning, but they still need to be on their A-game you know, in the morning, that this has a sh very ultra-fast half-life, and you may consider using this sublingual Ambien. It goes by the brand name Intermezzo. And then there's Ambien that also comes in a nasal spray, and you pretty much want to give that to patients you don't like. No, I'm just joking. I didn't say that. But yes, you could <laughs> puff the Ambien up your nose if you want to. But, you know, like I mentioned, uh, those medications work on the alpha subtype receptor for the benzodiazepine receptors. When we talk about these non-selective benzodiazepines, many of you know these as lorazepam, brand name Ativan, diazepam, brand name Valium, or alprazolam, brand name Xanax. And because they work on all the different receptors, alpha, beta, gamma, these will have anticonvulsant properties. These are going to have anti-anxiolytic properties. These are going to have muscle relaxant properties, but 
it's really truly the alpha receptor that deals with sleep. And that's why we use these ambient somatolunestas. It's not wrong to use Ativan or Valium, but you know, they're very addictive. They're all addictive. I'm not going to downplay it one bit. And I will say this, everyone, if you have someone on one of these benzos or non-benzos, please, please, please be careful that you can't just stop the medication right away. So does anyone know, based on a board pearl for probably emergency medicine, why can you not stop benzos right away? That's right. Say the magic word. You could definitely get seizures from it. And how do I integrate that? Is that, you know, one of the things I think about is that when I see as a critical care doctor, people who are found down, we don't know the medical history, we want to wake them up, you know, what are things that I can give to anyone who's found down with altered mental status to try to wake them up? There's three things I could give. I could give glucose, I could give thiamine, and I can give Narcan. But you know what I can't give just people I find down on the, on the ground or on the street? I can't give them the antidote for benzodiazepines. And who knows? Who's my pharmacologist out there? What is the antidote for benzodiazepine? The answer is... <laughs> <laughs> you're just gonna resist <laughs> and <laughs> so why because you know what they pretty much weren't gonna die from that benzo overdose until you gave that flumazenil now they have what life threatening seizures so this is another way that i like to integrate all the different knowledge of u.s assembly and board exams together so you know, just to give you a couple more examples, people always ask me about melatonin. It really shouldn't be here in my drug talk. I have one more slide talking about, you know, herbal supplements. And, you know, that's what melatonin is. It's not an FDA-approved drug. It's an, an herbal supplement. But it does mimic a hormone that's natural in your body produced by that pineal gland. And my take-home message for everyone this is that melatonin is not really a potent sedative. You know I mean? I'm sure many people here are like, uh-uh, Dr. Raj, I take it. My friend takes it. It's great. And that's great. I'm not going to say no, but it really isn't because it's not about the dose. I'm not, and what do I mean by that? If three milligrams is not working, four is not better and five is not better and 10 is not better. It's all about the timing about when you take the melatonin. And so if you take the melatonin at the wrong time, meaning very, very, very late at night, you want to mimic its natural release. You could actually screw up your circadian rhythm. So when do I use melatonin? It's great for people who have delayed sleep-based syndrome, aka night owls, because what do I want to do with them is that I want to advance their circadian rhythm. I don't want it to be delayed any further. So when I give melatonin to my patients, my, you know, my general rule of thumb is two hours before your desired bedtime, which is around eight or nine at night. If you tell a college student, to take their melatonin before they go to bed. Well, what time does a college student go to bed, everyone? Like what, three, four in the morning? So they'll be taking that two in the a.m. So you gotta be very careful about that. But right next to it, there are categories of drugs called melatonin agonist. So they're gonna activate the melatonin receptor. Number one, you can never afford it. <laughs> it's very expensive. But when do I think about this in a board review sense? You know, there are many people with respiratory issues that have insomnia. What a surprise. Now, here's a good podcast, COPD and sleep. That's a cool one. But, you know, when you want to give a lot of these benzos, non-benzos, you know, I mean, sedative you know, medications, of course, you worry about the respiratory tribe. 
One good thing about these melatonin agonists is that melatonin does nothing to your respiratory drive. So at least in the board question, if they ask you what would be a good medication for someone with underlying lung disease, look for that answer. And one of these drugs is called uh, Raumelion, goes by the brand name Rosarum, really good for people who have underlying respiratory issues. Now, I'm going to mention one TCA in particular, and it goes by the generic name Doxapin. So many of my physicians have been practicing for a while will say Doxapin. Man, that's an old TCA that we use for depression. The answer is yes, yes, and more yes. But, you know, a drug company actually did studies on this medication and got FDA approval for people with chronic insomnia. And this is not a medication that you take only when you're having a bad night of sleep. You take it every single day. And it really has the least amount of addiction of all of the things that we've been talking about. It goes by the brand name Sonor. And I do tend to use it quite a bit, you know, and if you use it, you know, for depression, the dosings are going to be at 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams. But for sleep, when we talk about this brand name drug, I only need to give three or six milligrams. But I start off with three, maybe six. And for my clinicians who are going to be watching this video, yes, doxepin also comes in a 10 milligram dose. It wasn't studied in that dose, but sometimes it's so much cheaper on my patients to get that. I may start them off with, the, with that generic 10 milligram dose, just to mention that. The last thing as far as these sedatives are concerned, there is a air quote new bad boy on the block. And it's something that's going to be manipulating a receptor called the orexin hypocretin receptor. So this is a neurotransmitter, orexin slash hypocretin, that is historically an alerting neurotransmitter. And this neurotransmitter, its claim to fame is really when we talk about one sleep disorder called narcolepsy. And if you were to ask me, Dr. Raj, what is your jam when it comes to sleep? I mean, narcolepsy. I'm a big advocate and spokesperson for it. I don't think there's enough podcasts out there to, to hear my opinion on it. But what happens is in people with narcolepsy, bear with me, everyone listening, is that you don't have any orexin or hypocretin. And that was really a big game changer when we talk about defining the classic narcolepsy, which we call now type 1 narcolepsy, or we call it narcolepsy with cataplexy. So when I think of this category of drug, it's a little frustrating. I'm going to get on my little pedestal over here is that, you know, drug companies, you could have been the coolest people in the whole world and say, you know what, instead of making a drug out there that's going to be an antagonist, you could have made a drug that's an agonist because people with narcolepsy could really, really benefit from this. But I don't think you did that drug companies wise because narcolepsy is not common, you know, but what is common is insomnia. Everyone has it. So you chose to make an antagonist. So here you go. The first one out there goes by the brand name Valsamra. And, you know, I've been getting a lot of consults from psychiatrists. And why is because not as surprising, you know, when I was talking to Ted and saying, does depression play a big role in insomnia? And he totally said yes. And that's correct. Many of my patients also have a lot of psychiatric issues. And it's just the way it is whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, major depression, dysthymia. And so the big thing is they're on many medications. And when this drug came out, it really is this orexin hypocretin receptor really has no other role that we know of yet except regulating sleep. So I get a lot of consoles to start them on this medication because of the fact that it's not going to interfere with other things that are going on. 
So it's a hit and miss. I got to tell you one thing. Treating insomnia is one of the hardest things in the whole world. You definitely have to be patient. There's never one drug that works for everyone. And sometimes, you know, I just want to be honest. I mean, I have patients that say, you know what? Ativan doesn't work or Valium doesn't work or my Ambien doesn't work. And really, when I hear this as a clinician, not to be negative, I just know that there's not going to be a magic drug I'm, I'm stashing away like, okay, then this is the right answer. It really is being patient, working with cognitive behavioral therapy. And even if the patient says they did it once or twice, do it again. You know what I mean? Just to kind of mention that it's not only about the drugs to, to help people out, though people do need them at some times. Herbal remedies, I want to mention it because, you know, on the board exams, you know that people are now practicing a lot of homeopathic medicine. So are there questions about your prostate and Saul Palmetto? The answer is yes. Are there questions about the G's that cause antiplatelet effect? The answer is yes. And you're going to ask me, well, Dr. Raj, don't tease me. What are those G's? What about ginkgo? What about ginseng? All those G words are going to be, are going to have effect of antiplatelet effect. I knew there's another G. I didn't leave you hanging. The other one is garlic. So you need to know those. When we talk about postmenopausal female and insomnia, should you know that they tried black cohosh? The answer is yes. So please don't just limit yourself on, you know, just knowing the brand name and generic drugs. They like to throw things out there. When we talk about things that we've tried for sleep, well, let me just say as a blanket statement. Number one, there is no 100% evidence-based medicine on any of these. There's no randomized controlled trial. I can't tell you what's the best route to take these drugs, what's the best form to take these drugs, what's the best dose to take these drugs, but you do want to know their side effects. You know, I could have put melatonin here if I wanted to, but we already spoke about it. Things that I would know, valerian root also works on the GABA receptor. Things that you've got to be careful with is kava kava. I don't know if many of you, any of you went to the Fiji islands before. They love kava kava there. It really has toxicities to the liver, so you must, must be careful. I'm going to jump down to tryptophan because everyone likes to know about tryptophan for the board exams. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, tryptophan, that how does that, why are people taking tryptophan to help them sleep? Because that is the amino acid that makes what sleep hormone, sleep neurotransmitter? The answer is melatonin. And so one of the, one way I remember this, one of the old adages is that, has anyone out there heard about one of the things to get you good sleep is drinking a warm glass of milk? Yeah, of course. And why is that? Because milk contains a lot of what? Tryptophan. And on top of that, why do you want to have a warm glass of milk? Why not just chug a cold glass? Is when you warm up milk, it actually, it, it's, it's easier on the stomach. You get less upset, which is what you want. But nowadays, one of my favorite things to even mention is just maybe taking a warm glass of almond milk. You know, we have a lot of vegetarians out there. And, you know, when you talk about almond milk, not only are you going to get that tryptophan part of it, which turns into melatonin, you're going to get some magnesium. And I didn't put magnesium on my, my herbal remedies list, but, you know, magnesium is a muscle relaxant. It's one thing that may add to it. So maybe a warm glass of almond milk. Maybe that might work for someone out there. So I just wanted to mention. And the last thing I have here, and you know, I, obviously I don't think there's enough recording time for me to talk every single bit about insomnia. I try to be all inclusive. I have this slide that says, be careful of non-FDA approved sleep products. And I'm just going to mention one to end on a positive note or a funny note for that matter, is that I told you that uh, 
I see a lot of, uh, you know, USC college students. I love them. Fight on, go Trojans. I remember one time I had a student that came to me and the student was a really nice kid. I loved him. And I'm like, how can I help you today? And he took a bottle and he put it right on my desk and he said, these pills are not working for me. And I'm like, all right, what pills are they? And he showed it to me and they're called wake up on time pills. I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, doctor. He's like, you know, I had, I, you know, I had a test a couple of days ago. I had a final in the morning and I didn't want to miss the final. So I bought these wake up on time pills and I did not wake up on time. And really I thought that I was getting punked or something like there was like a secret camera here because this guy was really serious and the pill is in front of me and I'm like, okay, gotta, gotta be, you know, answer this appropriately. <laughs> and so anyways, what the pill was is that it was like delayed release caffeine. So you take it when you go to bed and because it's in some kind of delayed release capsule, it slowly releases it and you wake up in the morning. But the problem is it says, take it when you go to bed. And of course, what time did this kid go to bed? Like four in the morning, he was pulling a what? All nighter. And so of course he didn't wake up on time, but why would you want to have delayed release caffeine on you? I don't know. And this is a real thing. And it scares me that people purchase these things. I'm sure someone listening to this has actually bought one and is kind of embarrassed or knows someone who got one. So please be careful. Anyways, I think I, I promised, you know, Ted, I was going to only go like 30 minutes. I think I totally overshot that. I really hope you enjoyed this. And if you want more podcasts like this, you like my style of teaching, integrating, hey, let me know. Say hello to me on my social media. Find me on Instagram. Find me on Facebook. And you know what? I think I'm done talking. Good luck, everyone. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much, Raj. And we'll make sure that your social media handles make it into the show notes so that everybody can find you there. I want to thank you for joining the Inside the Boards podcast and sharing your expertise on this topic that, as we said, is so important yet undertaught. So we really appreciate that. And just a reminder to everybody that Dr. Raj is going to be launching his own podcast, The Dr. Raj Show. So please check that out wherever you get your podcasts. should be out in the next month or two. Have a good day, everybody. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time on the Inside the Boards podcast for even more high-yield learning.